Pushkin. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways, shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. Hey there, it's Michael Lewis. Before we get to this episode, I want to let you know that you can listen to each episode of Judging Sam, The Trial of Sam Bankman-Fried, ad-free by becoming a Pushkin Plus subscriber. And with your subscription, you'll also get exclusive access to ad-free and early bingeable podcasts, like Paul McCartney's new podcast, McCartney, A Life in Lyrics, Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History, The Happiness Lab from Dr. Laurie Santos, and tons of other top shows from Pushkin. Sign up in Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm slash plus. Welcome to Judging Sam, the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried. I'm Michael Lewis, and we're recording this on October 17th. Today on the show, Matt Levine. Matt's a business columnist at Bloomberg News, where he writes the terrific newsletter, Money Stuff. He's covered SBF and FTX closely, and he knows more about how crypto markets work than just about anybody else. I wanted to talk to him about a lot of things, among them how his early conversations with Sam might have foreshadowed the FTX collapse, and where the $8 billion this whole trial is about actually went. And I also wanted to talk to him about how his reading of the portrait I painted of Sam in my book has changed now that Sam's on trial. I have a question for you I don't want to forget. You were bewildered by the response to the book. Like, it was just weird, the initial response to the book. Am I misquoting you? I don't know. Like, the days leading up to the trial, I think there was, like, a desire for people to either be pro or anti-SPF. And to be clear, everyone in the world, except for, like, his parents, is anti-SPF. And so it was sort of convenient for you to be the pro-SPF guy. So that <laughs> Even if you were being like, yeah, I think this guy's innocent. Like, I don't, like it's not that necessary to to like get mad at that because like it's okay everyone thinks he's guilty <laughs> but people were mad at you for for like kind of defending him but you said something interesting to me when i sent you this note asking you to come on you said that when you finished the book just on the basis of the facts in the book you thought yeah i don't want to put words in your mouth but but that it actually sort of like convinced you even more of his guilt maybe slightly changed the way you felt about what he had done 
I feel like there have been two narratives of this, which are one, his narrative, which is I like made a series of understandable mistakes and lost all that money. And then everyone else's narrative, which is he's an evil genius who stole all this money to spend on political donations and Bahamas real estate and like, you know, cackled gleefully as he stole the money. And neither of those is that compelling. And like between those two, his like, oh, I'm just an innocent guy, you know, had some had some legs. But I think that like what what came clear what came clear to me in the book, and like to some extent I should have known this already, he's sort of a classic scammer figure in the sense of like the core thing he did was take ridiculous risks with his investors, with his customers' money, while saying and probably believing himself that he wasn't right. Like part of the problem is that the guy loves taking risks, but part of the problem is that like he can sort of like sit down and look at you in the eye and say, Oh no, I'm not taking risks. This was all totally safe. And like kind of believe it himself. And I think that's like the, what I got from the book is like a real portrait of a guy who is like that, who is a wild risk taker who sort of doesn't perceive it that way. And like, that's like a really classic profile of someone doing a financial fraud, right? Like that's, that's kind of how everyone does it. And so to me, reading the book, like, like sort of made sense of what happened in a way that is like less bad than like the worst story people tell about Sam Bankman-Fried, but also in a way that is like fully sufficient to convict him of fraud. <laughs> like, and, and like, and is in fact the normal way fraud happens. What was the emotional takeaway when you, when you look at what's happening now and you look at the likelihood he's going to go to jail for 40 years or whatever, um, how do you feel about it? Look, I feel bad for everyone to whom bad things happen, which includes, you know, the people who lost money on FTX and also him and his parents, you know, like I think, yeah. Dano, you know, it's, it's sad for anyone to go to prison. But that said, I mean, like it did like make like a little bit, make me share in like the outrage that people have at him. Cause like, you really can't do that. <laughs> You're not supposed <laughs> yeah. to do that. You know, I've talked to him, you know, not like this week, but <laughs> in, in the past. And I think that he, he, he does like really coherently and convincingly present this picture of like, oh no, it all made sense. And I think that like having the fuller portrait of like what he thought all made sense makes you kind of mad. And like, you know, it didn't make sense. You just were, uh, you know, you just, you, you had like a blind spot in your mind about like the risks you were taking and like, and like your own sort of status as a charmed person who would definitely get all the money back and it was no problem. I mean, the story in your book that is so damning, I think, is the, the thing about the very early days of Alameda where they like Thank misplaced yes. some money and yeah. he's like, ah, it's like an 80% chance we'll get it back. It's no problem. We don't have to tell him about it. And then like they get it back and he's like, ah, see, I'm always right. And like, that's like, that's like the worst possible lesson for him to learn. Right. Like had like, had they never gotten the money back and like, had he been fired, that would have been it. He would be like, go be a trader at Jane street or whatever. Right. Like he'd be fine. Right. But instead he's like, I can never mess up. And then he lost like $8 billion instead of $4 million. And now he's like going to go to jail forever. So I think that's exactly right. When, when people ask me what chapter, to, if they're going to excerpt a chapter or read a chapter to get a feel, I say that chapter because that's the foreshadowing of what's going to happen. And what also happened in that moment was, you know, we had this pool of 20 effective altruists who were working with him. Half of them decide he's a, a criminal or are so catastrophically sloppy that he might as well be a criminal. But the half who stay, in, you know, including Caroline and Nishat and Gary, they become convinced of the narrative that like yeah. Sam's right all the time. Right. That becomes the new rule. So that that creates kind of the psychology of FTX that it's, it's sort of like that, that Sam is beyond questioning. Um, and that, well, obviously that leads to what it leads to. Yeah. Anyway, you, you mentioned, 
I want to talk about your interactions with Sam Bankman-Fried for a bit. One of your interactions with Sam Bankman-Fried has become evidence in the trial. Can you explain this interaction and can you explain how the prosecutors have used it? So I've done two Bloomberg podcasts with him. And the first of them was like maybe a little early in his celebrity. It was like in 2021, I want to say. And we just like, we just had like a very geeky conversation about crypto market structure. Just like, how do these exchanges work? And I didn't really know anything, but like I come from a sort of, you know, traditional finance equity market structure background. So we could have a, and you know, he does too, right? He came from Chain Street. So we could have an interesting conversation about like, you know, pre-funding trades on exchanges. And like, you know, one thing we talked about a lot was there had been this epidemic of crypto exchanges blowing up. And like one thing that FTX was promising is we have a better sort of risk management system. And he, in his role as sort of like an elder statesman of crypto, like walked through all the bad ways that all the other exchanges did it, which is basically like they didn't have any system. They like blew people out of trades sloppily and then lost a lot of money. They didn't have any sort of insurance fund. And so they had to like basically haircut winning traders in order to, you know, make up for losses by losing traders. And he was like, and we have a different system. We have an intelligence system for blowing people out. We don't just like put in market orders to sell stuff on the exchange. We like have liquidity providers who like step in and we have an insurance fund too, but we never really had to draw on that. And so the interaction that, that gets played at the trial is him saying we've never really, essentially he says we never really had losses in a day. Like we've always been able to stop losing trades before they cause any material loss to FTX. And what prosecutors say is that that's not true. And they had a big loss early on that sort of like ate away at their entire insurance fund. This is in the context of like also Gary Wong testifying that the insurance fund was essentially fake and that they like displayed on their webpage a fake number that was generated by a random number generator to say, this is how much money we have backing FTX trades. So the thing that he told me about like FTX's risk management was in the prosecution story, essentially false. And it's like, you know, that's like sort of the heart of the fraud is, is that he is telling everyone, not only are we like not stealing the money, but we're like doing an extra good job of risk management to make sure that your money doesn't get lost. And in fact, it turns out they're doing kind of an extra bad job. You had this other interaction with him that gets repeated over and over. And I think slightly misconstrued, but maybe I'm wrong. Like our listeners, if, they, if, if they're loitering in the vicinity of this subject for very long, are going to run across this thing that you did with him on, I get, it must have been the second podcast interview you did with yeah, him. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and the, it was on the Odd Lots podcast, the Bloomberg right. Odd Lots podcast. Can you explain what you were talking about and what he said and how it's been misconstrued? We had him on Odd Lots repeatedly because he would just sort of like talk about whatever you wanted to in like the crypto world in a way that seemed very like open and candid and not always in his best interests. Yes. Um, in hindsight, it was not as open and candid as I thought, but it was even more <laughs> not in his best interest than I thought. I don't even remember what the topic of this. It was just like, we were like, hey, let's like, you know, talk about crypto stuff. And so... One thing that was on my mind at the time was like a corner of decentralized finance called yield farming, which is basically, I mean, you can read his explanation because it's famous now, but I was like, explain to me yield farming. And he was like, well, it's like you have a box and you have, you put some token, you get some money on the box, then you issue some tokens and you say the box is like the greatest thing in the world and it's going to replace all banks. 
and then you sell the tokens for a lot of money and you put more money in the box and then like the tokens go up and people are like, oh, I should buy some more of those. And like, that's sort of explanation of yield farming. And if you're like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, that's what I said. And that's what everyone said. I said to him something like, you just said, I'm in the Ponzi business and it's pretty good. And he was like, yeah, kind of. What I think that like people misinterpreted from that is like, if you take that out of context, it sounds like I'm saying to him, your business is a Ponzi. And he's like, yeah, but that's not true at all. What he was saying is that a lot of this like yield farming, like token stuff in crypto in like decentralized finance is pretty Ponzi-ish. Yeah. And when I said, it sounds like you're in the Ponzi business, I just meant like he was you know, running an exchange where you could trade those tokens. Yeah. But I think that at the time when people listen to this, when people who like are involved in crypto listen to this, what they what they took away was Sam Bankman-Fried is trash talking his competition, right? Like his competition in, in some sense is decentralized finance, right? Like he runs one of the biggest at the time, centralized exchanges. He wants people to trade with him rather than on the blockchain and decentralized finance exchanges, which like at the time seemed like a real uh, competitor to the more traditional financial system that he was kind of uh, imitating at FTX. And so he's saying, all that stuff is like Ponzi stuff and I'll trade the tokens, but like, I don't, you know, like he was not, he was not putting it in its best light. And I think people- He wasn't confessing to running No, he wasn't state. confessing. Right. And he was being very cynical about crypto, right? He was being cynical about- narrowly DeFi, but more broadly, like the philosophy of crypto that made people in crypto mad. But it also like, it sort of explains why people like me found him interesting because he just never seemed like a crypto true believer, right? He seemed like a guy from traditional finance who's like, wow, here's this huge pot of money that I can make. He didn't like, he wasn't like, oh yeah, crypto is going to change the world. He's like, yeah, it's a box. You put money in the box. It's fine. So I think that like, it seemed at the time, like he had a sort of like charming and refreshing level of cynicism. But then, of course, in hindsight, like, not only did he have much more cynicism, but also, like, the trade he described, he ends up by being like, you can put all the, you can, like, say this box has, like, a huge market value, and then you can borrow against it. And then when you borrow against it, you never have to pay the money back. And, like, when the market value collapses, you have all the money, and someone else is left with the losses. And he was, like, describing, like, a hypothetical trade in decentralized finance. But, of course, he was also, like, precisely describing what FTX and Alameda ended up doing. And so it is in that sense, you know, it was foreshadowing. We'll be right back. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. 
This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So, buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So, how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. Welcome back to Judging Sam, the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried. So you've taken, I think, more of an interest in crypto finance as ser than anybody in the world. You've described it better than anybody in the world. You've written really well about crypto. You've written sometimes kind of cynically about crypto. I'm curious, when you make crypto people angry with what you write, are they different from other groups who get angry with what you write? Is there a different kind of tone around crypto uh, than there is around other parts of finance? It's funny. My go-to example for years of people who get angriest about what I write are the people who are mad about high frequency trading. <laughs> like, that's just true. Um, and so that's like kind of your fault. That is kind of, that is kind of my <laughs> no, but fault. But seriously, people get really mad at me about like high frequency trading stuff. Crypto people, I don't know. I mean, like I definitely mute a lot of people on Twitter, right? But like, I don't, I wouldn't say that like, like contrary to stereotypes, I would not say that I get a lot of like weird or furious reactions when I write cynically about crypto. I think that, you know, it's a big world and there are a lot of people with different views, but I think that like broadly speaking, people in crypto think of me as being fairly generous to them like you know there's no there's no crypto like mindset right like crypto isn't a thing right it's right. just like a collection of, of people right and so it is i think it's i think it's like really true and sociologically interesting that like the beginning of crypto is really oppositional to traditional finance where like you know the openness of the blockchain and storing your money yourself rather than at a bank that's going to use it to make risky bets mm -hmm. is, is like those are the obvious appeals of crypto and then over time, the numbers keep going up. And so all these people flock in to speculate. And you have people like Sam Bankman-Fried who are like, I can make a fortune arbitraging Bitcoin prices between you know Asia and America. And 
when those people get into it, they just want to make money. And they come from, in many cases, like in his case and in three hours case, they come from traditional financial firms where the way you make money is like you spot an arbitrage and you lever it up a hundred times. And it just looks exactly like the sort of traditional financial system that blew up in 2008, except it's unregulated, it's offshore, and you know it's taking money from retail speculators, and it's like run by twenty-eight-year-olds, and it blows up like as terribly as you could hope for, and like everyone goes to jail. Its shape is very reminiscent of two thousand eight. Right. I want to swerve for a second and talk a bit about your career, if that's all right. Can we do that? Sure. sure. I want to know where you come from. Like, where'd you grow up, and how did you end up getting into finance, and then into writing about finance? Uh, I grew up on Long Island. I precociously read Liar's Poker as a kid. And I was like, this sounds fun. If you had found me at some point, like in high school, I would have been like, I'll be a, you know, Salon Brothers bond trader or whatever. But then I like got to college and very much swerved. And I was a classics major in college. I did not take economics. I had friends who took like EC10, the big economics class. And I would like leave the lunch table when they were talking about it. Cause like, this is boring. Um, and like there was, you know, recruiting senior year when it's like, oh, like you go work at an investment bank. And I didn't really do it. I like graduated with no job. And I was like, oh, I should get a job. And I like, I, I was able to use connections to get a um, job teaching high school Latin for a year. And uh, I did what everyone in that situation then does, which is I went to law school. And in law school, I sort of rediscovered my interest in like, you know, financial markets and mergers and acquisitions and stuff. And so then I became an M&A lawyer and... In 2007, if you were an M&A lawyer, what you wanted to be was an investment banker. So then I became an investment banker, and then I did that for a while, and then I really didn't want to do that anymore, so I became a writer on the internet. So so that transition, why did you decide- So you it's didn't... not like Liar's Poker directly sent me to investment banking, but like it did like pave the way a little bit. Um, and I know that that's like, you regret that or whatever, but you know, it was fine. Your path resembles my own path. Like I, I had this hostility to the economics department when I was in college and, uh, and didn't have a job when I graduated and all that. But anyway, it's, I'm curious about that transition out of investment banking to writing. Um, why did you decide you didn't want to be an investment banker anymore? I started as an investment banker as like an associate in a weird desk where I was like structuring stuff and I was doing interesting stuff involving like math and law and like getting into the guts of things. But then as you get more senior, you know, the job is, is ultimately a sales job. And so I was spending less time, you know, learning and understanding things and more time getting on planes to give clients updates. So I was getting worse at it. I was enjoying it less and I vaguely imagined being a writer. And so like the sort of, you know, the lines crossed and it became a good time to leave. Um, I, I want to t- talk to you a bit about, there's a, there's a part of my book, I almost called you. I called you, it is just, I, just to clear the air here, I thought it was really funny that I was a few months into like hanging around with Sam and I was questioning whether this was the character I wanted to be with. And I thought I'll call Matt Levine and ask him for advice. You remember this call? I said, I called you and yeah. I said, I said, I said, if you were going to put me with any character in crypto, who would it be? And you said, without even thinking about it, Sam Bankman Freed. And it was one of those little things that gave me confidence I was in the right place because I hadn't actually been paying all that much attention to crypto. And I thought I was in the right place, but I didn't know. And that's why you're giving me 10% of the movie deal, right? Did, did you get the check yet? <laughs> we'll be right back. Hold up. 
Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. Welcome back. I'm still wrestling with this. When it all blew up and, all right, there's a, some pile of money missing. It was a little unclear how big that pile of money missing was. It seems to see, still be a little unclear. It's completely unclear to me. I have no idea. And so you've been watching. <laughs> if you've noticed that like the bankruptcy people, the number they keep, they say they found keeps going up. And the last number was like $7.3 billion, and the customer deposits missing was $8.6 billion. What I'm wondering is to what extent the money is lost, like lost in a, in a bad trades, and to what extent it's lost like, oh, it's in some exchange in South Korea or some bank they didn't pay attention to. 
And um, and I was just wondering whether you were one following that. You don't doesn't sound like you're following that. My sense is that there was a lot of money lost on bad trades. I think that like it's unclear what it's unclear what those bad trades were. That's the I agree. I think that like there are interesting theories that Alameda was sort of a lost leader to get people onto FTX. Right there, there's like a theory that Alameda was was sort of regularly losing money on trades either because it was a market maker that was not doing a very good job of market making. And so you would always like get a good trade on FTX because Alameda was always losing right. money on the other side or because Alameda was the sort of counterparty for a lot of liquidations. And so if you got liquidated on FTX because the trade moved against you, Alameda was the one buying it and Alameda was constantly losing money by taking position, by catching falling knives, basically. Um, I think there's like probably some truth to both of those theories, but not that much because I don't think by the end when FTX was huge, I don't think Alameda was a huge percentage of volume. I think like like the shape of those answers is probably like a little bit true, but it's not like, it doesn't really explain where a lot of the money went. And in, and in addition, if that were true, the prosecutors would have teased us out of Caroline. Yes and no. Because I like to me, that story is like, that story sounds like a Ponzi scheme, but it's not intuitively obvious that it's a Ponzi scheme. Like, right. I think like if you heard that story, you're like, oh, like, they were they lost money by doing trades that were good for clients and like that was good and like they were just on the losing side of trades and that was innocent right it's not that bad a story intuitively it's just like when you sort of trace it through you're like oh so it was a ponzi scheme they were like giving investors money by taking it from other investors are there any other theories bouncing around oh i mean like the standard theory is like they spent a lot of money on political donations they spent a lot of money on real estate like part of the answer is they spent 500 million dollars on a stake in anthropic that was like a great bet and is now worth probably billions of dollars. And so like, as like a legal matter, you're not supposed to like take your customer money and bet it on early stage AI startups, but like that might've worked out. Right. And like the real estate stuff is like, I don't really pretend to understand the Bahamas real estate market, but presumably they can sell those things for, you know, like around what they paid for. Right. So some of the money is not gone in the sense of like flush down the toilet, but it is in the wrong place. Yeah, it's like it's like lots of fraudsters like take customer money and buy a mansion for themselves, and then you can sell the mansion and give the money back. But like, it's still not okay. Yeah, no, I get that. Uh, so, what questions remain? In, what, what questions are you still asking about this? Like, to what extent is your mind not come to rest on the FTX story, and you think there are things you still want to know? I, uh, I mean, I, th- honestly, the main answer is I assume that Sam will testify. Um, I think that like the public perception of him is really down right now for obvious reasons. But I do think that like he like made this work for a while. People were buying what he was selling. And I think he was always a good talker. Right. And he always like gave you the impression of being quite candid. Right. And he always was, um, you know, sort of like quick witted and like in his weird way, personable. I assume he will testify. I assume he will tell a story that is like internally coherent. I assume that when he's asked even moderately challenging questions, he will have quick and like at least superficially reasonable sounding answers, right? I'm interested to see like how he frames the story and how compelling it is to me and to everyone else and to a jury. 
Oh, and the other the other class of assets that we haven't talked about is the bankruptcy estate is trying to restart FTX. They're like, oh, we're gonna you know probably rebrand it and uh, start up an exchange again and see what happens. You could imagine the government saying like, you can never restart this again. All this IP has to be thrown into the ocean. Never speak of FTX again. But like, they're not doing that. They're selling. And so I don't. Know, I mean, there's some chance that they'll get back more than like a penny more than the deposits. I don't think they'll do that before. Sam's sentencing. And I don't think that, you know, the legal system sort of frowns upon like talking about that because like it feels like like a coin flip, right? It feels like luck, right? It feels like you did the bad thing and you stole the customer money and you put some of it into these lottery tickets and then you put the rest of it into like private jet flights for yourself. And like the lottery tickets won, but that's not like your, that doesn't like go to your moral guilt. It just, it's just like a, you know, you happen to get lucky. Um, But what's interesting is like, you know, after the fact, like Sam was going around trying to save the firm, right? He's trying to find a buyer. And at the point when he was doing that, it was like a little too late, you know, like it was like a little, you know, too obvious how badly things had gone and how much customer money was missing. And so I think that like one story that Sam will tell is like, if he had only waited 12 hours before signing the bankruptcy papers, he could have saved this whole thing, right? I don't think that's true. But if it turns out that the thing has positive value, um, then he probably wouldn't be going to jail. And he certainly wouldn't be going to jail for as long as he's looking at right. here. I think that filing for bankruptcy and then getting arrested and then getting the money back is just like a terrible order of operations for him. That's right. In addition to the story Sam tells on the stand, is there anything else you're kind of looking for out of this process? Or do you feel like you now more or less know what happened and not much that comes out is going to cause you to update your understanding? I'm always curious, like how many people knew and like, to the extent the number is small, how you could keep it small. And I think that like, I feel like I'm kind of getting satisfied with the answers to that, right? Like it does seem like all of the inner circle are testifying saying, yeah, we knew it was fraud with like Nishad being like, I learned late that it was fraud. Um, In September. And yeah, which is weird because he's sort of integral to some of the coding of the fraud, but there is kind of an explanation for how other people didn't know that, right? Which is like some combination of Gary wrote most of the code himself. In shorthand. Sam was a weird <laughs> passive aggressive manager. Yeah. Nobody knew anything. But it's still weird, right? I mean, it's still weird that the accepted narrative is like five people knew. It's it's still puzzling to me. But I, I think that like we're sort of groping towards an answer on it. All right. Thank you for coming on. I really yeah. appreciate the time. And see you down the road. All right. Thanks. We'll be back in your feed soon with more expert analysis and news from Sam Bankman-Fried's trial. Thanks for listening. Lydia Jean Cott is our court reporter. Catherine Girardot and Nisha Venkat produced this show. Sophie Crane is our editor. Our music was composed by Matthias Bossi and John Evans of Stellwagen Symphonette. Judging Sam is a production of Pushkin Industries. Got a question or comment for me? There's a website for that. atrpodcast.com. That's atrpodcast.com. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd like to access bonus episodes and listen ad-free, don't forget to sign up for a Pushkin Plus subscription at pushkin.fm slash plus or on our Apple show page. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. 
featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to reuse hotels and resorts and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com.